Section 11 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Denham. Chapter 3 Habsburg and Valois 2 by Stanley Leaths. Part three. And so the stormy year, 1547, passed into the sullen peace of 1548, while the Pope was still offering ecclesiastical concessions as the price for the restitution of Piacenza, and Charles replied by asserting his right, not only to Piacenza, but to Parma also. Gonzaga continued to push his adventurous plans upon the Emperor, and hoped to take advantage of the passage of the Archduke Philip through northern Italy in the autumn of 1548, at least to secure the building of a castle in Genoa. But nothing could be done except by force, and the Emperor was above all anxious to preserve the existing equipoise, as is shown by his instructions to Philip, written in 1548. With Gonzaga was cooperating Mendoza. He increased his personal authority over Siena, disarmed the citizens, and finally proposed the erection of a castle. The Pope proceeded with his negotiations with France, and although he allowed certain ecclesiastical concessions to be extorted from him, nothing certain resulted. The affairs of the Council became more and more desperate, and finally, in September 1549, the order came to suspend it. The proposal to give Parma to Orazio Farnese, or to incorporate it with the domains of the Church, had alienated Ottavio, who, after a futile attempt to seize the city, took refuge with Gonzaga. Paul III died on November 10, 1549 his last days embittered by dissension with his family, whose advancement had been his chief thought, and for whom he had sacrificed the friendship of the emperor and the interests of the church. His last act was to sign an order to place Parma in Ottavio's hands, but the Orsini who were holding the town refused compliance. The conclave which followed was unusually prolonged. The imperial party, with whom the Farnese party made common cause in the hopes of winning Parma at least, if not Piacenza, for the family, were in a majority, and aimed at the election of Pole, or the Cardinal Juan de Toledo, both known to be well disposed towards ecclesiastical reform. But the French party, though not able to elect any of their own candidates, were fully able to prevent the election of any other, and after the conclave had lasted more than two months, the two parties agreed to elect the Cardinal del Monte, who took the name of Julius III, February 7, 1550. Although his sympathies on the whole had been French, although he had been associated with the removal of the council to Bologna, although he had the reputation of frivolity and vice, the imperial party accepted him as likely to choose tranquillity 
rather than war and intrigue. Tranquillity meant the continued domination of Spain. His good disposition towards the emperor soon became evident in a number of matters, trifling in themselves, but important in the aggregate. More important still was the intention which he soon announced of reopening the council at Trent. In fact, on November 14, 1550, he published a bull summoning the council to meet at Trent in the following May, notwithstanding the opposition of France and the impossibility of settling the conditions in accordance with the wishes of the emperor, the demands of the German diets, and the interests of the curia. Julius had restored Ottavio Farnese to Parma in fulfilment of promises made in the conclave, but he could not effectually protect him against the hostilities of Gonzaga from Milan. Nor could he persuade Charles to restore to his son-in-law Piacenza also. On the contrary, the pressure of Gonzaga on the borders of Parma, and his intrigues within the duchy, drove Farnese to apply for aid from France, December 1550. Terms were arranged with France, and Ottavio passed into the service of Henry. The king assembled troops at Mirandola. The emperor pressed for a sentence of confiscation against Ottavio, and offered a loan to enable Julius to carry it out. Gonzaga seized Brescello, to the northeast of Parma, from the Cardinal d'Este. The pope hesitated, but finally decided it was more dangerous to offend the emperor, and, May 1551, declared Ottavio deprived of his fief. It then became necessary to resort to force, and Giambattista del Monte, the pope's nephew in command of the papal troops, received orders to cooperate with Gonzaga in the occupation of the Parmesan. June. The war opened badly. On his way to join Gonzaga, Giambattista suffered a slight reverse. Bolognese territory was attacked by the Farnese, and the safety of Bologna itself was doubtful. The Pope was anxious to protect Bologna, and called off the chief part of his troops for its defence. Reinforcements reached Parma from Mirandola. Although Mirandola was under French protection, it became necessary to attack it, and the double enterprise against Parma and Mirandola proved too much for the scanty forces. The country was ruined, but nothing was effected. War had not yet opened between the French king and the emperor, but the peace concluded with England by Henry II, March 24, 1550, by which Boulogne was restored for a money payment, left him free on that side, and he could choose his own moment for overt hostilities. Meanwhile, the truce between Charles and the Sultan had been broken. A new corsair, Dragut, had established himself on the Tunisian coast of Africa, at Mehedia, known as the Port of Africa. His ravages on the neighbouring littoral of Sicily, and further afield, had rendered action imperative, and in September 1550 the united fleet of Charles' dominions had attacked and captured his headquarters, 
though his fleet escaped on this occasion, and again from Doria's blockade in the following spring. Charles could represent that this act of reprisal had been abundantly provoked, but the Sultan had made Dragut his commissioner to rule over the whole of Barbary, and regarded the attack upon him as an attack upon himself. On his return from an expedition against the Sophie of Persia, which the truce with Charles had permitted, the Sultan prepared for war. In July 1551, a great Turkish fleet appeared in Sicilian waters, and after vainly demanding the restoration of Mehedia, the Ottomans turned upon the Knights of St. John and captured Tripoli, August 14. In September of the same year, the Turkish war began afresh in Hungary. Once more, Charles had to withstand the simultaneous hostility of the Most Christian King and of the infidels. In the course of 1551, Henry was submitting plans for common action to the port, and the use of the Turkish fleet was recommended. War in Hungary being calculated to unite the Germans in defence. The King of France was also in relations with Magdeburg and with Maurice of Saxony. Under these auspices, the Council met once more at Trent in May 1551, though it was autumn before formal proceedings could be begun. Its prospects were not rosy, for in September 1551 war opened on the side of Savoy. Although François de Brissac, the French commander, did not push his attack, the necessity of action in two distant fields completely disorganized the imperial finances in Italy. The blockades of Parma and Mirandola were in consequence slackly pursued. The Pope saw little prospect of gain from the war. His debts were burdensome, French hostility threatened him with the failure of French funds. He began to think whether an arrangement with France was not possible. In April 1552 he concluded a truce with France, which allowed Ottavio Farnese to hold Parma unmolested for two years. About the same time the Pope's nephew Giambattista died in action. Charles was fain to accept the truce, for the same reason which mainly influenced the final decision of the Pope, the rising of Maurice of Saxony in alliance with the French, and the news of a French invasion. A fresh advance of the Turks in September 1551 was another of the intolerable burdens which Charles had to bear at this, the darkest moment of his life. The alliance between Henry II of France and the Protestant princes of Germany was concluded at Chambord on January 15, 1552. It opened the way for a new development of French policy, the acquisition of territory not Burgundian at the expense of the empire. On March 13, 1552, Henry invaded Lorraine, took the government from the Duchess and her infant son, and, in accordance with his agreement with the Protestant princes, 
occupied the principal towns of the three great bishoprics of Toul, Metz, and Verdun. Since the accession of René de Vaudemont, the power of the dukes had been consolidated by the Duchy of Lorraine, by the extension of their influence over the bishoprics, and the election of relations or partisans to the several sees. But the policy of the duchy, in the wars between France and Burgundy, had been to preserve neutrality as far as possible, and thus, up to this time, immunity had been secured. The marriage of Christina, the emperor's niece, to the heir of Lorraine in 1540, had not, during the life of her husband, disturbed this neutrality. But Christina had been recently left a widow, and her regency in the duchy gave a plausible excuse for French intervention. Lorraine was easily subdued, but an attempt to see Strasbourg failed. The Netherland forces created a diversion by invading France and devastating Champagne, and Henry replied by marching on Luxembourg and occupying the southern part of the duchy. The emperor had hoped, before the crisis arrived in Germany, to reach the Netherlands, but his way was barred by the Confederates. In Innsbruck he was not safe, and he was a fugitive at Villach in Carinthia, while the French worked their will in Lorraine and Luxembourg. But in August 1552, after the Confederates had been brought to terms, he issued once more with an army, and passing through southern Germany, was well received at Strasbourg, which had refused to admit the French. Thence, notwithstanding the lateness of the season, he proceeded to the siege of Metz, which meanwhile had been strongly fortified by François, Duc de Guise, and was ready to hold out. In spite of Charles' discreditable alliance with Margrave Albert Alcibiades of Brandenburg-Kulmbach, the siege, which did not begin until October, proved a complete failure, and on January 1, 1553, Charles had to order a retreat. These events had their reaction on the Council of Trent, which was suspended in April 1552 for two years, or until the troubles should be overpassed. That no more general rising took place in Italy during the months when Charles was suffering the invasion of Lorraine, and afterwards flying from Innsbruck before his enemies, is a remarkable testimony to the solidity of the edifice which he had built up. Charles contributed indeed to this result by abandoning the forward policy and its agents. Mendoza was recalled, and Gonzaga was removed from the government of Milan. There were not wanting centres of dissatisfaction. Ferrara was French, even Cosimo wavered, Siena, irritated by the castle which Charles was building outside the walls by the advice of Mendoza, burst into open rebellion, July 17, 1552. But Cosimo was able to isolate the conflagration, and although the Spanish garrison was driven out and the fortress levelled, the rebellion did not spread. 
it was agreed that Siena should remain free under imperial protection, and foreign forces should be excluded. Nevertheless, French troops garrisoned the city, the fortifications were strengthened, and the Cardinal of Ferrara assumed the government in the French interest. The Spanish government had to acquiesce for the present, and wait for its time to come. An attempt in January 1553 to subdue the city by force from Naples failed owing to the death of Toledo, and the recall of his son, who was commanding the army. In 1554, however, Cosimo gave the word for more energetic action. Piero Strozzi, the ubiquitous opponent of Medici and Habsburg, had entered the city in January. During his temporary absence, Florentine troops surprised a gate of the city. Nevertheless, Siena held out for fifteen months, the besieging army being commanded by that successful adventurer Gian Giacomo Medicino, Marquis of Marignano, while Blaise de Montluc governed the city for the French king, and Strozzi showed great ability and resource in frequent raids and sallies. But Strozzi's total defeat at Marciano on August 2, 1554, rendered it possible to complete the blockade, and in April 1555, the city surrendered to famine. The irreconcilables held out for four years longer at Montalcino, but the issue was no longer doubtful. The city was given up by Philip to Cosimo, 1557, and incorporated in his duchy of Tuscany. The Spaniards retained, however, the coast towns, the Presidi. Piombino and Elba, Cosimo had already received. So ended the last of the old-fashioned revolutions of Italy, and one more single and independent city was incorporated in the larger system. Cosimo was a main link in the Italian scheme of Charles, and the accessions of territory which he received were well earned by his services to the Habsburg cause. Meanwhile, the French and Turkish fleets had been cooperating in the Mediterranean, raiding the Italian coasts. They then provoked a rebellion in Corsica, which at first had considerable success, but ultimately, with Spanish and German aid, the Genoese recovered the principal fortresses, and the Treaty of Cato Cambrésis restored the island to Genoa. The war on the French frontier continued its indecisive course. In June 1553, Charles had his first success. Terouanne was attacked in April, and after two months capitulated with its garrison of three thousand men and Montmorency's eldest son. Emmanuel Philibert, who in this same year succeeded his father as Duke of Savoy, took and destroyed Hédin. Robert de la Marque, whose hostilities had first involved the Emperor in war, 1522, was a captive. An attack on Cambrai by the French king failed. 
In the following year the French changed their objective to the valley of the Meuse, capturing Marienburg, Dinan, and Bouvines. To resist them, two new fortresses, Charlemont and Philippeville, were built on the territory of Liège. The defence of Namur by Charles in person ended his fighting days with credit. Almost his last act of authority was to conclude the short-lived truce of Vaucelles, February 5, 1556. The close of Charles' career is characteristic. A long campaign against odds in which reverses were fully compensated by success. The marriage of Philip with Mary of England, July 25, 1554, conceived in the true Habsburg spirit. The completion and final consolidation of his work in Italy. The religious peace of Augsburg, in which Charles was forced by political necessity to acquiesce against his will and against his convictions. His work was done. During forty years he had striven to discharge the impossible tasks imposed upon him by accident and a mistaken dynastic policy. He had now accomplished what he could perform. The Duchy of Milan and preponderance in Italy was a set-off for the lost Duchy of Burgundy. The conquest of Lorraine he could regard as a wrong done not to himself but to others. The acquisition of this duchy would have tempted him had he resembled his ancestor Charles the Bold. It does not, however, appear that he ever contemplated such a conquest, a proof of his essentially conservative policy. He had given peace to Italy and Germany. At the price of much that was valuable, much that could never be restored, but still he had given peace. The accession of Paul IV, May 23, 1555, gave reason to believe that this peace might be disturbed, but its ultimate restoration could be confidently expected. The late war had shown the strong defensive position in Italy and the Netherlands, a position so strong that the main French attack had been diverted from Charles' hereditary possessions to the neighbouring independent and weaker powers. Spain, as usual, was regarded as inexpugnable. With the Reformation alone he had proved unable to cope. It was an accomplished fact, but he had given it bounds and extinguished in Germany religious war. The question of Savoy still remained unsolved, but this he could leave to his son to settle. So long as France still held Savoy and Piedmont, she held the gates of Italy, and Spanish garrisons in Milan had to be maintained almost at war strength. But something must be left undone, and Charles had the right to demand his release. Although he was still young as we measure youth, his incessant labours had destroyed his health. He was racked with gout, the penalty of his voracious appetite and unsparing industry. His abdication, although it has often been regarded with surprise, was the most natural act, and the moment for it well chosen. In the Netherlands it was accompanied by a touching and impressive ceremony, October 25, 
1555, when, in the midst of a splendid assembly at Brussels, the Emperor, with tears, explained his reasons, recounted his labours, and gave his last exhortation, and then solemnly invested his son with his northern provinces. Milan and Naples had been previously handed over, on january sixteenth fifteen fifty six charles resigned his spanish kingdoms and sicily shortly afterwards he gave up the franche comte he made over to his brother all his imperial authority though his formal renunciation of the empire was not accomplished until fifteen fifty eight free at last he set sail for spain September 17, 1556, and made his way to the monastery at Juste. Here he took a constant interest in the political affairs of the time, and occasionally intervened by way of advice and influence. After two years of rest, broken by increasing infirmity, he closed his life in 1558, too soon to see the seal set upon his labours by the Treaty of Cato Cambresi. Julius III had concluded on March 24, 1555, his insignificant career. Marcellus II, his successor, died on April 30, and on May 23 Giampero Carafa was elected and took the title of Paul IV. The ecclesiastical activity of Carafa his share in the endeavour to restore pontifical and hierarchical authority in the years previous to his election as Pope, his religious attitude and tendencies do not concern us here. But the spirit shown by Carafa in the treatment of heretics and the affairs of the Church promised little peace if it were to be applied to the complicated political relations of the Papal See. What all expected to see was an uncompromising postponement of political expediency to the single object of restoring papal supremacy and ecclesiastical unity. What none could have foreseen was that not only the political interests of the Holy See, but also all chances of an effective Catholic reaction were to be sacrificed to the demands of intense personal hatred. It was known that Carafa was an enemy of Spain. As a Neapolitan, he detested the alien masters of his native country. In 1547, he had urged upon Paul III an attack on Naples in support of the rising which had then occurred in the kingdom, and it had subsequently required all the influence of Julius to procure his admission to the Archbishopric of Naples but the overmastering nature of his hatred was not known, and is even now not completely to be explained. If we assume that personal grounds of animosity cooperated with intense hatred of foreign rule, a despairing sense that one last blow must be struck to free the papacy once and for all from Spanish domination, 
and a stern conscientious antipathy to those methods of compromise with heretics which had been the chief mark of charles action in religious matters if we assume that all these feelings worked together each intensifying and exacerbating the other then we can perhaps begin to understand the attitude of paul in addition his advanced age he was seventy-nine years old at the time of his election admitted of no delay what was to be done must be done quickly and the history of the papacy can prove that old age exercises no mitigating influence over the passions of anger and hatred the forces with which paul entered on this struggle were in themselves insignificant the total gross revenues of the papal state about this time are estimated at one million crowns, from which sum four hundred thousand crowns must be at once deducted for taxation remitted by Carafa and necessary current expenses. The ecclesiastical revenues had been reduced by the apostasy of Germany, the practical independence of Spain, the condition of England, and by the austere refusal of the Pope himself to allow money to be raised by questionable means employed in the past. The papal troops were inefficient even if judged by an Italian standard. The population was neither prosperous nor devoted, and there were permanent centres of sedition and opposition. Paul set himself at once to gain external help. Ferrara joined, a league was concluded at Rome with France, which was represented by Charles de Guise, the Cardinal of Lorraine, December 16, 1555, but Venice, as usual, maintained a watchful neutrality. But his policy of enriching his nephews by confiscation of the goods of Roman nobles, while it agreed ill with the zeal for reform and justice hitherto professed by the Pope, gained him many enemies at home. The conclusion of the Truce of Vaucelles, February 1556, was a disappointment to Paul, but his able and unscrupulous nephew, Cardinal Carlo Carafa, succeeded during the summer in persuading Henry II to renew the League for defensive purposes. The security and imprisonment of Garcilaso de la Vega, the secretary of the Spanish embassy at Rome, was a measure of open hostility, and the Duke of Alva, who had succeeded Toledo at Naples, was forced to redress a remonstrance, almost an ultimatum, to the Pope in August 1556. No satisfaction was to be expected, and in September the Spanish troops crossed the frontier and began to occupy the Campagna. The Pope, ill-prepared for war, was forced to beg for an armistice, which was granted, December 2, 1556. He used the interval to call on his ally for help, and before the month was out, the Duke of Guise crossed the Alps. Instead of allowing him to proceed to the reduction of Milan, Paul insisted on his pressing on through papal territory to Naples. The passage of the French troops increased the discontent of the papal subjects in Romagna and the marches, 
which had already been aroused by the extraordinary subsidies required for the war. The papal troops were melting away for want of pay, and when the allied armies crossed the Neapolitan frontier and laid siege to Civitella, they were soon compelled to withdraw. In August 1557, the news of the Battle of St. Quentin caused the recall of Guise, and the Pope was left without defence. Alva could easily have taken Rome if he had wished, but neither he nor his master wished to reduce the Pope to extremities. The Pope was forced to beg for peace, which was granted on easy terms. The only serious concession required was the restoration to the Colonna and other friends of Spain of the property which had been taken from them and conferred upon the papal nephews. The Spanish hegemony in the peninsula stood firmer than ever, but the papal state was not curtailed. Alva visited Paul at Rome, and was reconciled to the Pope. September 1557 After this brief and fruitless exposition of hatred, Paul returned rebuked to his work of ecclesiastical reformation and the stimulation of the Inquisition. That action of the Inquisition was frequently directed by political motives was generally believed at the time, and is not in itself improbable. Partly to quell the resentment caused by this and other measures, partly perhaps to indicate the recognition and abandonment of a mistaken policy, Paul, January 1559, deprived his nephews of all their offices and banished them from Rome. This act of justice was, however, only the preliminary to the enforcement of still sterner measures of religious repression, and when the Pope expired in August 1559, it was amid scenes of wild disorder. The headquarters of the Holy Office at Rome was stormed and wrecked. The Pope's statue was destroyed and dragged with ignominy through the streets. His ecclesiastical policy— appeared to be as complete a failure as his attack upon the power of Spain. But indirectly the action of Paul had a permanent effect on the history of Europe. It led to the rupture of the truce of Vaucelles. The conclusion of this truce had seemed to be a triumph for Montmorency, but Cardinal Carafa and the influence of Guise secured the real triumph for the party of Lorraine. Soon after the expedition of Guise to the peninsula, war broke out in the north of France, but both sides confined themselves for some time to preparations and defensive measures. On June 7, 1557, Mary of England declared war on France. At length, in July, the army of the Netherlands, under Emmanuel Philibert, began to move, and laid siege first to Guise, and then to St. Quentin. Coligny succeeded in throwing himself into this place, and animating its defence, but when Montmorency attempted to relieve the fortress, August 10, he was attacked and severely defeated. The constable himself, with many of the greatest men of France, was taken prisoner. 
the only French army in the north was scattered, and the way lay open to Paris. But Philip refused to allow the advance, and the French were given time to assemble troops and put their defences in order. Coligny's obstinate defence in St. Quentin gave seventeen days of respite after the battle, and Guise was recalled from Italy. Philip occupied a few trifling fortresses, and then disbanded his army. In November, Guise, whose authority with the king was now no longer contested by the conflicting influence of Montmorency, had brought together an army, and on January 1, 1558, the siege of Calais was undertaken. In eight days the town surrendered, and the English were expelled. Guine was captured shortly afterwards, and this gate of France was closed for ever to the English. But the French need was extreme. While the siege of Calais was proceeding, the notables of France assembled in Paris at the king's command, and Henry demanded of them a loan of three million crowns, one-third from the clergy, two-thirds from the towns. The news of the capture of Calais caused the proposition to be accepted with acclamation. In April, the marriage of the Dauphin to Mary of Scotland, with the secret agreements concluded previously, opened other prospects to French foreign policy. In May, however, negotiations for peace were begun by the Cardinal of Lorraine, and Antoine de Granvelle, Bishop of Arras, suggested the alliance of France and Spain for the suppression of heresy, pointing out that persons in the highest positions in France, such as Coligny, Dondello, and the Bourbon family, were infected by the new doctrines. Religion was beginning in France to intensify party rivalries and serve as an excuse for partisan revenge. But before negotiation could lead to its full result, war had once more to play its part. The French plan of campaign for 1558 was directed to the capture of Thionville, and as a sequel to a double invasion of Flanders. But the delays caused by the long resistance of Thionville, which did not fall until June 22, prevented the simultaneous execution of the two attacks. The Maréchal de Termes from Calais was first in the field, and after sacking Dunkirk and ravaging the country, he found himself forced by the Flemish army under Egmont to give battle near Gravelines. Here he suffered a complete defeat, July 13, to which the guns of the English fleet contributed. After this, the French armies were compelled to confine themselves to the defensive. In October, peace negotiations were resumed on the northeastern frontier in the county of Saint-Paul. During the course of the discussions, Mary Tudor died, November 17. Her death facilitated an agreement in two ways. In the first place, it reduced the importance of the question of Calais. Philip had no longer any need to insist on the restitution of this town 
for the benefit of Elizabeth. In the second place, it allowed marriage proposals to weigh in the scales, and although Philip sued for the hand of Elizabeth of England, there was little to be expected in that quarter. After the conference had been removed to Cateau-Cambrécy, February 1559, Elizabeth, finding that Spain was not supporting her demands for restitution, agreed that France should retain Calais for eight years, and the way was cleared for the main compact. The peace was signed on April 2. The last point decided was that Philip should marry Elizabeth of France. France restored Marienbourg, Thionville, Donvillers, and Montmédy, receiving in return St. Quentin, Ham, Le Catelet, and Terouanne. Bovine and Bouillon were given back to the Bishop of Liège. Philip retained Hédin. Montferrat, the Milanese, Corsica, Savoy, Bresse, and Piedmont were abandoned by the French except for the places of Turin, Pinarello, Chieri, Chivasso, and Villanova in the territory of Asti. Montalcino was to be given up to the Duke of Tuscany. France did not press for the restitution of Navarre, but retained Saluzzo. Thus the contest of sixty years reached its close, never to revive in the same form. The boundaries of the Netherlands were restored with slight alterations. Italy was left as Charles had fixed her system. Savoy was re-established as a buffer state between France and Italy, a position which the genius of her dukes would use to good advantage. No treaty marks a more definite stage in the development of the European state system. It involved the acceptance of Spanish supremacy in Italy, and the recognition of the organic unity of France, of Spain, and of the Netherlands. For all her concessions, France received compensation in the debatable land which lies between the southern boundaries of the Netherlands and the northern slopes of the Alps. Here, the international struggles of the next century would be fought out, until French ambition returned once more to attempt the conquest of the Netherlands and the obliteration of the Pyrenees. The death of Henry II, and the accession of Elizabeth in England. The death of Paul IV, the marriage of Philip with Elizabeth of France, and the death of Charles V, all occurring within twelve months contributed to emphasize the close of an old epoch, the beginning of a new one. The policy of Montmorency had triumphed over that of the Guises. The obstinate persistence of Charles V had received its posthumous reward, and the outbreak of the wars of religion in France on the one hand, the revolt of the Netherlands on the other, were before long to paralyse all those remaining forces and ambitions which might have reversed the decisions recorded at Cateau-Cambrécy. The Reformation had hitherto run its course almost without opposition, 
henceforward the energies which had been absorbed in the long dynastic struggle would be occupied by the still greater contests arising out of the counter-reformation movement. In these contests, the resumption of the Council of Trent and its policy and conclusions furnished the dogmatic basis and defined the controversial issues. End of section 11. Recording by Tom Denham.